0: Before we dive into this episode of HRD Masterclass, I'd like to take 30 seconds to share the exciting news that we're now seeking sponsors for Season 5 to release in 2024. This is a wonderful opportunity to support the podcast series and also share your message with 3,500 HRD listeners around the world. Sponsorship options cost just $750 and $600 per episode, And for full details, contact D-A-R-R-E-N at allbypodcast.com. Right, let's start the episode.
1: Many learning and development HRG professions do not think strategically. They think in a very operational, tactical way. And that perhaps limits their impact within the organisation,
0: Welcome to Human Resource Development Masterclass, the new podcast series from the Academy of Human Resource Development, the organization that leads HRD through research. I'm your host, Darren Short, and throughout this first series, I'll be joined by leading authors, researchers, and scholars to explore the fundamentals of HRD and how those are changing in the 2020s. Our focus for this episode is strategic HRD, and we'll be exploring how strategic HRD leads to improved organizational performance, what it means for an organization to practice strategic HRD, the relationship between strategic HRD and strategic HRM, how HRD practitioners can become more strategic in their work, and much more. To help me, I'll be joined by two leading scholars Dr. Thomas Garavan. Professor of Leadership Practice in Cork University Business School at University College Cork, Ireland, and Dr. Holly Hutchins, Vice Provost of Faculty Success at the University of North Texas, United States. In the first part of the episode, I'll chat one-to-one with each of them, and then for the second part, Thomas and Holly are together to explore their shared interest in strategic HRD. That discussion is brought to you with the help of the generous support of our sponsor, Interpretive Simulations. Find out more about their services at interpretive.com. All of the content you'll hear in this episode was recorded during May and June of 2021. Right, let's dive in to meet my first guest. My first guest for the episode is Dr. Thomas Garavan, Professor of Leadership Practice in Cork University Business School at University College Cork, Ireland. He is a world-leading expert in leadership development, learning and development, and HRD. Thomas has published 185 journal articles, 16 books, 26 book chapters, and 6 monographs. Including extensively in the leading HRD journals, the top four HRM journals, and leading management journals. His most recent book publications include Learning and Development in Organizations, a Systems Informed Model of Effectiveness, published by Palgrave, and Strategic Human Resource Management, published by Oxford University Press. Thomas is co editor of the European Journal of Training and Development an Associate Editor of Personnel Review. He was recently elected to the Hall of Fame of the Academy of Human Resource Development and has won numerous awards for publications as well as journal editing. Hi Thomas, welcome to the HRD Masterclass Podcast. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on strategic human resource development. Well, I am very delighted
1: to be involved. I think it's a very important endeavor for AHRD.
0: Strategic HRD is likely to be a new term to many of the people listening to this. And so I thought a good place to start would be to explore what's meant by the term and how strategic HRD differs from HRD.
1: How I define HRD and how I've defined it for the past 30 years uh, is that it involves uh, investments by organisations in the human capital of employees to achieve organization performance. Now, I appreciate that that's a short definition, but in underpinning that or within it, there are a lot of very important uh, subtleties and nuances. The very first thing that needs to be said is that uh, Having reference to the very famous Swanson continuum of learning and performance as the orientations of HRd, strategic HRd really focuses on the performance end of that continuum and so therefore differs somewhat from more traditional HRD conceptualizations and conceptualizations such as development, training, and learning, which more give emphasis to the learning piece. Now, admittedly, learning is important, but performance is the really important component of strategic human resource development. One of the other things about strategic HRD, it gives emphasis to the notion of alignment, and in this case, strategic alignment, or what we call vertical alignment. In other words, that the things that the HRD practitioner does day to day in organizations contribute to building the knowledge, skills, abilities, and behaviors and values that will best help the organization to realize its business strategy. Now that all sounds great in theory. However, some from my research uh, down through the years, I've I've realized that many HRD practitioners don't have a great appreciation of the strategy in some cases, or a knowledge of it, or they are not in a position hierarchically or structurally within the organisation where they can glean what current strategic thinking is. Because in many organisations, and especially in SMEs, which I've studied quite a bit, they may never articulate in a formal term what their business strategy is. And likewise, learning and development may operate, and HOD, may operate in a very informal Formal way. So, therefore, the, the practitioner in that situation has to make it up and improvise and learn on the hoof as the go, so to speak, and to find out what's required. And often in those situations, investments in HRG are often very reactive. They are, they're done when a problem or a gap arises rather than proactive to build, to help to help the organisation with strategy implementation. So that's one of the big things that there's that there's a gap or a misfit between um, what's articulated by the organisation but also what reading the L&D or the HRD profession can make of it to try and make sure that they do the right things. And then the other, I think, controversial point about strategic HRD is this. Do you invest in all of your human resources or do you invest in the strategically more valuable human resources. And that, I would say, is another big area where SHRD differs from traditional HRD. Traditional sure. HRD take a more inclusive, uh, equitable, and uh, all-embracing approach, that all employees are valued to the organisation, or all, all employees' human capture makes a contribution. Whereas an extreme form of strategic HRD would say that actually employees have different value. And depending on the position in the organisation, the role that they perform, then it may be appropriate to make more investments in development and training and HRD generally in those to gain maximum effect. So that I suspect that represents three of the more um, fundamental components of SHRD. And I've highlighted as well how it potentially differs from more traditional notions of HRD.
0: There is a, um, a sense within practitioners that just because I've got a, an HRD strategy document, that that yeah. makes me strategic. doing strategic HRD. But it sounds like that isn't the case. As in, I could have an HRD yeah. strategy document that, that focuses HRD on the wrong things.
2: Absolutely.
0: Um, and so having an HRD strategy document doesn't imply that you're doing strategic HRD, by the sound of Absolutely. things. Absolutely. One of the problems with having a strategy document, even if it's a HRD strategy document, it's a very
1: static thing, and organisations are continuously changing. So therefore, what may be written down a year ago may no longer apply as we've seen post-COVID or as we're coming out of COVID, many ways in which the organisations operated have to fundamentally change and that is one of the criticisms that's often made against HRD practitioners is their lack, the agility or the ability to pivot, to meet the fundamental change requirements of the organization and deliver the type of learning solutions that were necessary. And I did a survey on this last year, which I published a short survey, which was done with Irish and UK L&D practitioners. And <clears throat> we asked them in that survey, which was a team of researchers, what was the most typical thing they encountered when it came to responding to COVID? And that was uh, they told me was to, to get out of the traditional ways of doing things. Think differently about the way in which HRD could be delivered. But most fundamentally of all, to talk to your point, to prioritise what should we really focus on now, rather than all things to all people, be more precisely focused to meet the very uh, crisis needs that might have existed at that time.
0: So it does sound, uh, from listening to that, it sounds as if a critical piece to be to strategic HRD is being close to the business and but close to executives, and and that, that's kind often a challenge for HRD practitioners. They find themselves maybe in an HRM function, or they find they can't get to executives Absolutely. because they have to go through other leaders. Yes. Um, Absolutely. If you were t- talking to HRD practitioners about how to get around some of those problems, what 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 are the things you've seen work? I published a monograph last year in European Journal of Training and Development, which
1: actually talked to that point. Number one, um, there was no doubt about it, is where the L&D function was a separate function, and the head of that position was on a senior board or a senior management team within the organization. That gave the function greater profile, also greater potential to be proactive, but also to pivot and to be strongly strategically aligned. One of the interesting things that came up in that survey was that um, l and professionals told me in some cases that they were reporting to a HR manager who was very employee relations or industrial relations oriented. And therefore they found themselves not having a great ear when it came to articulating l issues in the organization. And then what they told me, I asked them specifically to come to your point was what can they do to um, to raise their profile? And, and they told me two or three things which are very interesting. Number one, that whatever they do, they do it very well, publicize it and get senior management sponsorship first. Get somebody outside of the HR function in a senior role, be it the CEO, be it a manager or director level to sponsor that program. And that gives them, a higher degree of visibility and that these senior executives who are the decision makers ultimately can see what is going on uh, in the organization. Number two, uh, they, they told me that it's important to involve senior stakeholders in the design of these learning events, HRD events, whatever they are. Many times they, the L&D function is asked to do something that goes off and does it, but doesn't consult or involve. So therefore, involve the senior team so that they have greater ownership of this particular intervention. And the third thing is to evaluate the success of any high-profile training HRD intervention and to publicize those results because it's through a process of feedback on what those results show that they may have a basis to get resources for future investment.
0: Yeah, the, that evaluation piece is, is particularly interesting to me because when I look at a lot of organizations and the way that they evaluate HRD, they're gathering vast amounts of data on, on metrics that really don't matter. Well, I make a very important distinction between lead, lead and lag measures
1: when it comes to evaluation. And a lot of training L&D professionals, HRD professionals, are very good at the lead things. These are the things that are immediately can be immediately measured. So they include all the stuff around efficiency, how many people attended, how many courses were done, what was the perceptions of it in terms of reactions, satisfaction level, and the perceived utility and value of it. They do great on that, but they do not do well on the lag pieces. And the lag pieces are... What was the level of training transfer? Did it go back into the workplace? How did it impact, say, productivity levels? How did it impact health and safety? Did customer satisfaction scores go up? Was Was sales performance improved? Was there a better focus on quality, et cetera, et cetera? And, for example, was there more innovation in terms of the number of ideas created and all those type of things? Now, they don't measure those. Now, I admit and acknowledge that to measure those effectively, they need to set up some good designs and good evaluation designs. Otherwise, they are not will not be able to say with confidence, did the investment in HRD actually lead to those things, or was it other factors that might have explained those outcomes? But that's the real conundrum.
0: Um, it's interesting there, because it, it takes me, I think, into... Um, the theories that underpin this, because one, yeah. one of the one of the one of the topics or threads that that has gone through the podcast episodes that we've created, is the gap between research and theory on one hand and practice on the other oh, when it comes to HRD. Yeah. And so, how do you picture the theoretical base behind right. strategic HRD? Well, HRD
1: theory is rather narrow. In terms of the number of theories used, the predominantly used human capital theory and the resource based view, those make up the greater number of theoretical perspectives that are used to investigate a very fundamental relationship, and that is the relationship between investment in HRD and organizational financial performance. So there is a very narrow set of theories. Those theories suggest a long term. A longer longitudinal relationship between investments in HRD and performance. However, many studies and the vast majority of them measure impacts cross-sectionally. They gather data on training at point one and on performance at point one, rather than say gathering data on training at point one and performance at point two, three, and four to really show that there's a longitudinal uh, impact. The third difficulty and challenge that I find it in much of the research looking at strategic HD and performance is that they don't have what I call predictive research designs. They don't get baseline measures of everything to start with before they start to uh, show that performance has improved as a result of training. And they typically only gather one measure of training rather than looking at how training might vary over a period and then showing is dynamically do differential different investments and training results in different performance levels, and the really holy grail of all of this is that very little of the research that we have today can show causation that there's an actual direct cause relationship between investment in HRD and organizational performance. And even more uh, intriguing and problematic is that there is no research. Absolutely no study that I know of that has looked at reverse causality. Well, if the organization achieves good performance benefits as a result of investment in HRD, do those good performance results imbue among senior executives the confidence that we continue to invest in HRD so that we can get future performance gains? And that reverse causality relationship is not
0: established in the literature my sense is is that um when a practitioner asks a question about strategic hrd the easiest response to any of those questions would be well it depends it depends on what your organization's like it depends on what yeah. your executives are like yeah. it depends and, and yeah. so that makes it difficult i i would imagine to come up with an area of investigation that can provide a generalizable statement
1: absolutely
0: yes a lot of the research on the
1: HRG investment organization performance link has assumed a direct relationship, which is a very, in other words, if you invest in training, you'll get a performance improvement, an organization performance improvement. But in fact, that's a very simplistic way to look at it. It's more than likely an indirect or what we call a mediated relationship. And the key thing is, um, the key thing is that there's a causal chain, there's a chain of consequences between investment and training to enhance human capital, to enhance motivation, to enhance performance. Because I've just completed a more recent meta-analysis, which shows that that it's it's a, a, a sequential relationship, that if you invest in training, it definitely enhances human capital. But if your employees are not sufficiently motivated, they will not give their human capital or contribute it to the organization. And as a result, the organization will not gain performance advantages so therefore you must train if you train employees must be motivated to um to contribute their human capital because we are all owners of our own human capital so we must contribute to the organization for the organization to gain benefit from it then the second thing that I would say and you re- used a very interesting word there in your question called conditions and I call those boundary conditions or moderators so for example we, we haven't enough of insights on what impact does firm size have on the HRD, strategic HRD performance relationship. Does, does sector make an impact? Does the fact that the organisation is high or low intensity, uh, technology intensity, make an impact? Does the fact that the, um, the organisation is very service oriented, how impactful is that? Are there there contingencies or or conditions that relate to where where the company is located? Is it located, say, in a high uh, human capital country where there's a lot of investment in human capital? What role do national cultural factors have? Say performance orientation, say uh, learning orientation, say collectivism versus individualism. We have loads of gaps. So we don't fully understand
0: all of these contingencies that might impact on the relationship. It sounds like underpinning a lot of your answers, there's almost a call to action, like uh, yeah. um, to, to say to HRD practitioners, look, there's a missed opportunity here. There yeah. is There's something you should be doing. What What would you recommend are the first steps for an HRD practitioner in taking this, this journey towards strategic HRD?
1: Many organizations train and invest in HRD, but they invest in it not because they need to do it, but because it might be perceived as a good thing to do. And they often do not know the needs that they are, the learning needs. That very famous piece of the systematic training cycle, identify your training needs, is actually rarely done in practice. There must be a back to basics here. Let's see what it is, is the need. The next thing that I would say then is picking the right HRG strategy. That's a fundamental thing. A lot of people and a lot of organizations and a lot of HRD professionals like the classroom. Now, the classroom has been upended with COVID, et cetera. Now, the classroom is great for certain types of generic skills. However, it may be more appropriate to have the training and the HRD intervention applied on the job using a structured instructional method on the job that may enhance transfer. Or there may be times where which was better off to use a virtual solution because you can, it's a knowledge-based thing and you can get wide coverage. So they often don't make the best choices in terms of matching the learning solution to the need that has arisen. Now, at a more general level, I would say that if, if, all, if the HRD practitioners want to get good evidence from researchers, then they must allow us in to do the research. And let us come in, let us set up the designs that are necessary to gather the data on high-profile training interventions or whatever they might be, or HRD interventions, and let us gather the data and stay with us. Be patient. Wait for the results to come through because there's a big tendency for quick answers. Oh, they love the course. They were all thrilled with being on the program. But that reaction and that effective reaction doesn't necessarily mean that it has any impacts on organization performance. And then I would say a lot of training and HRD the benefits that benefits of have are lost because the organization, culture and climate are not right. So you must have the right contextual conditions within which to do a learning and development HRD, strategic HRD, simply because uh, if you invest in knowledge, skills and abilities, and the organization's climate, it's culture, the levels of morale are low, then the reality is that you will lose a lot of the benefits of it. And more than likely you might be developing people to leave the organization rather than to retain the skills that are required.
0: Well, Thomas, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. And I hope uh, that uh, I have said a few things that might encourage our research community to think differently about how the research, the strategic HRG, G-G-H-R-G organization performance
0: link. Well, please stay with us and um, you'll be rejoining us after I've had a conversation with Holly. So, thank you so much indeed. My second guest for the episode is Dr. Holly Hutchins, a scholar, leader, and teacher in the area of human resource development. She just recently assumed the role of Vice Provost of Faculty Success at the University of North Texas. Prior to this position, Holly was Professor and Department Chair in the College of Technology at the University of Houston. Holly's research has focused on training transfer, crisis management, and more recently, faculty talent development. Holly's research has been featured in multiple peer-reviewed journals and across global media outlets such as NPR, the BBC, Psychology Today and The Guardian. Her TEDx talk on overcoming your inner critic is based on her innovative research on the impact of imposter phenomenon on work and career outcomes. Hi, Holly. Welcome to the HRD Masterclass Podcast. Great to have you here in our episode focused on strategic HRD. Thank
2: you so much, Jaren. I am so excited to be here with you.
0: In my conversation with Thomas, um, he and I explored the importance of strategy and being strategic. And now I know as a scholar and as a practitioner within a scholarly setting, you've developed strategies in practice. So I'm interested in your experience of doing that and the lessons that you've learned.
2: I'll speak to it from the lens of a faculty member and also in as, as a, a, a higher ed leader uh, in a formal leadership position. I, you know, I think I think in both of those roles, you have to be very mindful of the direction the organization's going. You know, what is their strategic plan? What are their goals? And we know that the goals shift <laughs> sometimes really rapidly, especially in this last year. And as we think about aligning the learning development talent talent development function with those goals what does that mean for us locally and certainly as a departmental leader how do my uh, colleagues understand that and so certainly one of the lessons learned is 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 to be that translator um, and and co-translator really with your colleagues what is what is this mean for us organizations saying we should do this, we should be mindful of this, we should be doing this in the next two to four years. What does that mean for us? And what, what gifts and strengths, do, you know, does your, your team bring to that? And how can we understand that? So it makes sense. And, and there's some, there's some buy-in. Another lesson is that, are we doing some of that work anyway? What are some exemplary practices that we are finding across our, our organization or our team are there people ramping up and, and, and doing great work? who are those people what can we learn from those people so it's it's very much an inquiry perspective too and when we can find local examples of implementing a strategy or innovating the strategy making it work maybe on a small budget or making it work with a small team, I want to understand the aspects of that to, to be able to scale that up And lastly, I think it's really critical to measure our work because we don't know how we're doing in alignment with a strategy unless we go back and say, "What well, this is what we aspire to do. This is what we articulated. Um, how are we doing and how can we adjust in practice to that? Because it's not linear. We've certainly seen through COVID um, that it's, it, it's more of a zigzag and sometimes a fallback and, oh my goodness, what do we do now? And so assessing where we are and feeding that back into the system, uh, and making adjustments that we, as we go, I found that my colleagues along the way, when we do things like that, are, are more inclined to stay with me as a leader, stay with the flow and the uncertainty. If they feel like, you know, their needs and, and issues and contributions are really being valued.
0: In listening to your answer there, it makes me feel like a lot of what you're doing is being strategic. Um, through the relationships that you're building and the conversations that you're having. And, and what I'm wondering is how you take that being strategic and turn it into a strategy.
2: I think as co-creators of the direction we want to go, you know, being able to engage those conversations in a really strategic way, we are developing strategy. So, I could simply come in, which often happens in organizations. And I'll say in the higher ed, the academy, it happens too. It's very top down. Um, this is what you'll be doing. Let's go, right? And of course, there's going to be resistance. Um, what, I've, what I've found is that in that co-creation, this is, this, is, this is where the organization you know, wants to go. We want to focus on lessening student debt. We want to make our curriculum more inclusive, we want to develop, let's say, a college of medicine or, or develop urban health practitioners. You know, those those are directions that are that are really important right now at the University of Houston. And so that can still be the goal, but how we get there is is has to be strategic and inclusive. And so I have noticed in the leaders that I have served with that they can have a direction. People can be excited about it, but how we get there. Uh, that, that that pathway has changed. And I think that evolution of being strategic and engaging these conversations helps us at the end develop a more strategic perspective because it's informed and you know, they always say, what culture eats strategy all the time. Um, so it needs to be informed by the people that will enact that strategy. So I agree with that. like the, the way in which you engage discussions of strategy, you're being strategic in doing that, which leads to more of that strategic direction.
0: It, it sounds as if being strategic and developing strategies, that there's a, a mindset around that, which is um, so sort of an attitude around the importance of strategy. And then all of the skills and knowledge that goes with being able to have those conversations and turn those conversations into a strategic direction. So there's a lot there in terms of mindset or attitude and, and skills and knowledge. Um, what I'm wondering is how well we prepare HRD practitioners for doing that sort of work and whether we could be doing more to cover strategic HRD in our education mm-hmm. programs.
2: Yeah, and and HRD is, in its infancy and its evolution, is strategic. It's It is an applied... Uh, perspective that you know as as we go in as HRD scholars and practitioners to prepare our students, they need to be involved in in projects and in interacting with HRD professionals who value an evidence-based approach. And so in my experience, we do have several practicing professionals, you know HRD professionals teaching our our classes as adjuncts. we also, University of Houston have a very successful executive human resource development master's program. And in that program, we probably have a ratio of, I don't know, uh, four or five um, very successful HRD practitioners. And I think two, two ordinary faculty members, me, me including uh, me as one of those, those individuals who also do consulting and, and uh, grant work with, with different industries. So um, I think the exposure to um, HRD professionals, they're bringing their insight, um, influencing the curriculum, um, having them really post scenarios and case studies to students, and then students doing applied projects. Um, we bring a lot of projects from, from industry through our advisory board, um, who are at the University of Houston, vice president level and above, so that they're, they're in that strategic role. And so... Um, having them bring projects and internships and really getting our students prepared, not only in their language change, but in their concept, in their application of the the theories and and the ideas that we present and they read about, um, they're seeing that in practice. And so um, I think that that's essential if we espouse to be an applied discipline, you know, leading the field through research. What does that mean exactly? And, And I think that when you if you don't have that exposure and that connection to um, individuals in practice, then our students are going to remain in the conceptual realm and not really get understand how you translate that into the applied realm. And, and many students arrive, and I would argue, across the nation and internationally with some experience. Um, our job, I think, as educators is to elevate and expand that experience. And I think the curriculum is is a, is a pathway to do that.
0: And then for a practitioner who's not currently in education, if if I take what you you're saying there, it sounds as if a good way of learning to be strategic then is to be networking and getting close to HRD practitioners who are strategic. So they can, Mm -hmm. they can learn from them as to how they're doing it.
2: Yes, I would, I would agree with that. And, and, you know, there's, of course, the mentoring research, you know, certainly supports this, that a variety of different um, connections and, and, you know, people in your network that can really inform that that understanding. I I learn a lot from my colleagues in the academy. I learn a lot from my colleagues that are practitioners. I learn a lot from the people that have a a foot in in all of those areas. And so I think the strength of your, your network and your community is, is so very important in that way to, to learn about, you know, how does, how does it look at across different organizations? Um, What does it mean to be strategic? Because we're, we're one thing that's, that is not the same, but it's certainly similar is, is how businesses have had to adjust to, you know, to COVID and, and to the um, increasing focus as should be um, the long overdue focus on social justice and anti-racism work. I mean, there's, there's a lot to learn about how to, Make that more of the strategic focus. In fact, I heard a wonderful um, uh, quote: um, Ico Bathea, who Brene Brown uh, uh, works a lot with as her um, diversity uh, officer, and she said, "You know, uh, we used to talk about DEI as separate, but DEI really is is leadership development. Maybe you shouldn't even be called about about you know DEI anymore. It's central. And so, strategically, we're seeing movement within that, but it's becoming a lot more integrated."
0: sounds as if, as we talk about the practice of being strategic, that a a key piece of that is being close to the business and being able to have conversations with the business about where the organization is going, um, what challenges they're facing that HRD can help with. Uh, I know from my experience as a practitioner that One of the things I had to learn early on was the importance of being able to have those conversations using the language of the business, so the language that executives speak and the language of business metrics. Given your experience of being close to practitioners who are going through education programs, do you find that they naturally are able to speak those languages? And if they don't, what can we be doing to help them?
2: Um, I think it depends on on the students that come into our programs. Some will have you know that experience or they're they're you know, working in organizations like that. And so our students that that don't have that language or those concepts, some of that is being, you know, understood and observed and and modeled through that. Um, so I think that's one of the the blessings of having a diverse, you know, program or uh, attracting diverse students. Um, but it's certainly essential as they are progressing into whether they're going into another position or going into an HRD or HR position for the first time. And so I I go back to not only faculty members, um, both, you know, HRD scholars and HRD um scholarly practitioners in, you know, using that language, um, talking to students about and putting and giving them readings and, and guest guest speakers that who talk about different aspects. And so I think that language development can certainly be modeled. One thing we, we often tell students is I know that you've learned something because your language is changing and your the way that you describe things, the way that you approach, um, Performance issues is different, and I know that because you're behaving differently. And a lot of that is through language, um, and then immersing them in these applied projects where the the, the professionals, um, the clients, if you will, um, interact with them. And so they're picking up cues. They're they're understanding different ways of communicating their message with with their clients who are industry individuals. And and so that is also a form of education
0: for them as well. It sounds like almost as if the HRD practitioner has to be bilingual in a way. I'd be able to speak one language and set of terms with their fellow HRD colleagues, and then be able to speak a, a separate, a similar but different language when they're in the room with executives.
2: Yes. And I, I don't know if it is completely code switching there because as HRD becomes more strategic and are in those strategic conversations, then they, I think, should also be using that same language <laughs> um, with their colleagues. And, uh, but of course, yes, the translation, well, what does that actually mean really? You know, because strategic you know, uh, and working at a strategic level, sometimes it's it's not well-defined. It's not, you know, and it's really like on the ground, what does this mean? Okay. But we, we have moved, I know, as a field from being less transactional to more uh, transformative and strategic where we are guiding ideas about talent development. We're bringing ideas to the table. And so that translation mode of making that understandable for non-HR or HRD people is really important. And I think that just observing what employers are looking for with with even our undergraduate students now, uh, but certainly our graduate students, you need to be able to talk that language because we're seeing students even brought in in a generalist role um, or analyst role because they have a strategic perspective that's represented in their language and in, in decisions that they make and suggestions that they make. They're quickly pulled into more specialist roles. They're quickly pulled into more OD work, even though maybe they were hired as an instructional designer. But because they're slowing down around needs assessment, asking good questions about evaluation, asking important ideas about how we're gaining, you know, engaging feedback and, and addressing resistance. They're they are speaking, speaking the language of strategy.
0: I like the sound there of HRD professionals having those kinds of strategic conversations. Of course, in some organizations, HRD professionals have to work through HRM colleagues to engage the business or, or to engage business leaders. So in your experience, does that create a barrier to HRD being as strategic as it could be?
2: I would agree with that. And that's certainly been the, the history um, of, you know, when we think about it, the, the C-suite level, um, only really in the last decade or so have we had a chief learning officer um, who who sometimes is part of the, the HR team, um, sometimes not. Um, but there ha- has always been a chief people officer, you know, call, you know, VP of HR, et cetera, et cetera. And so it can be a barrier in in the wide portfolio of what HR using that term generally has to deal with, you know, the recruiting and safety and, and, and uh, onboarding and benefits. I mean, there's so many different aspects. I, I usually tell students that HRD is the better part of HR. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I do believe that. I do believe if you talk about learning and development, that is across all aspects of, of HR. And if you don't have a strong learning development portfolio, if it's not central to the HR function, then I'm not sure how successful the HR functions going to be. Um, and so yes, I, I think that the, the traditional way that, that HRD professionals have been positioned or cast um, within the organizational framework can be, can be limiting. Uh, I think organizations now in understanding how to respond to change and understanding that it's not always about being first or, or you know, just immediately reacting to something. I think building that, that learning and development piece to it allows HR to be a lot more strategic. And I'll give you one example. Um, you know, again, talking about diversity and equity and inclusion and all the rush to do something. Um, a lot of organizations have handled that recklessly. Uh, just you know, have a listening session, um, which may or may not be well orchestrated or facilitated. Um, let's quickly do training, let's quickly get a guest speaker. Without really understanding what the the felt needs are, are holding space for our uh, Black Latinx mm-hmm. individuals with intersectional identities, you know, all of that um, to to you know to share their experiences. And so, I know that some of the the rush to be action oriented has done more harm. Now, HRD professionals would say, I think, believe. Let's have some discussions. Let's really understand what's going on. Let's educate our leadership team. Let's slow down. We can we can make some announcements. We can talk about, you know, how we're coming together. We don't need to try to band-aid this. And I I and I'm not saying HRM professionals would do that. HRD brings a much different approach to understanding change, the emotional aspect of change and how to engage that. And so it's it's a real asset. Um, that we that we're bringing into organizations and and the reason I know that um, not just believe it but I know it is because we're watching our students um, really outpace some HRM students they come in with a a much different skill set can understand the business part of it but but bringing in a very strategic understanding of change and strategy and and that's made the world a difference. It's made the world a difference in their careers. They've quickly been snatched up by, you know, other parts of the organization or they've been hired out by the other, other um, organizations. So they're quite competitive and they bring this, this very rich skill set into, into an organization.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Holly. I've really enjoyed our conversation today on strategic HRD. Me too. Thanks, Darren. So stay with us, and we'll bring Thomas back in for our group discussion. Up next, we have the group discussion, where my guests are together to discuss their shared passion for the episode's topic. This discussion is brought to you thanks to the sponsorship support of Interpretive Simulations. Since 2008, students and trainees have used Interpretive Simulation's HR Management Simulation where participants are tasked to make challenging decisions at the HR Director level in a simulated environment. Students must build a strong HR function at their simulated, medium-sized organisation and wrestle with the challenges of staying on budget. The simulation makes the connection between concept and practice, while students learn by doing. It comes with assignments, mini-cases and quizzes to reinforce core HR principles. If you'd like to receive faculty access to review the HR management simulation, visit them at www.interpretive.com and fill out a demo request. Welcome back to the HRD Masterclass Podcast. Our focus for this episode is Strategic HRD, and I've already met one-to-one with Thomas Garavan and with Holly Hutchins. And for the final section of the episode, we're all together for our group chat. So welcome back, Thomas and Holly. Thank you, Darren. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much. We're excited to be here.
0: In our individual conversations, we touched on the relationship between HRD and HRM, and i I'd like to dig more into that. Specifically, I'm wondering how strategic HRD compares to strategic HRM and what the relationship is between HRD and HRM at a strategic level. Well, that is a very
1: fundamental question,
0: Darren, and it's one that I frequently get asked
1: when I come before HRM students in particular. First of all, I say that the remit of HRM in an organization is much broader than the remit of HRD. So for example, I see the remit of HRM to be concerned with finding talent, uh, developing it, retaining it, and managing the relationship with people in the organization. So given what I've said there, HRD specifically focuses in on the development piece. And so HRD is very much about the development of people And I also emphasize that what HRD does in the strategic space must align with all the other things that HRM does in the relationship uh, retention, recruitment uh, pieces of the the HR architecture. And what's interesting is uh, if you remember back to my first um, piece of this masterclass, I talked about horizontal alignment and that's the term I use here to say that HRD and strategic HRD must align with uh, what HRM is doing. Otherwise, you will have a poor fit between practices in each of the different domains. And therefore, you will not realize the benefits of either uh, HRD, strategic HRD, or all the strategic HRM. So that's very important. And while I say that HRD, strategic HRD is primarily a development piece, and it's about K, knowledge, skills and abilities, I do acknowledge as well that there's a motivational component to uh, strategic HRD, which it shares with all the other pieces of HRM. Uh, The other thing you asked there is about, I'm wondering how strategic HRD compares. Well, they're both, I think both strategic HRD and strategic HRM are are premised on the idea that uh, people are a vital strategic resource to the organisation and therefore you must manage them and develop them effectively, if they're to contribute to organization performance. And I think performance is something, uh, organization performance is something that definitely uh, is common to both perspectives. I know that some of the strategic uh, strategic HOD is narrow in that respect, because it doesn't give us much emphasis to the learning piece, which is a fundamental component of HRD generally.
2: So I I agree with what um, Thomas just said, and I, I certainly um, can see the horizontal alignment, and, and, and certainly that that tracking with strategic HRD and stri- <clears throat> strategic HRM being very important. I do see though that um, to be effective with strategic HRM um, or strategic HRD, that uh, they are becoming one and the same, and and perhaps that is, is more of a US. Yeah. And- perspective, but certainly during COVID, um, so much of what we are understanding and learning about the needs of employees and how work is changing uh, that and, and around social justice and anti-racism, a lot of that, I would argue, has fallen to the HRD perspective in terms of how change happens and how learning and development can best be, can best, uh, be supported strategically. And so my uh, what I'm seeing is that it's, it's much more aligned. Um, from an HRM perspective, we're relying more on the people that know learning and development and how that shows up in organizational performance much more than perhaps we did pre-COVID and pre-George Floyd and pre-Brianna Taylor, and so I'm seeing that alignment even more strongly now. And uh, at least in some of the business schools within the United States, uh, they are acknowledging even more so that their expertise is not in learning and development when that HRD function is outside of the more traditional HRM structure, they are relying more in bringing that into the center. So I think that some of the external triggers that, that are that are that have happened that continue to happen really are aligning those pieces between HRD and HRM much more.
0: With so much happening as Thomas says on the ground there, what i'm wondering at this point when you go into an organization what is it that you would look for to determine whether that organization is actually practicing strategic hrd i
2: would say who's who's at the table who is um, involved in those Uh, I'll say strategic conversations. I think conversations happen or should happen at all levels, but certainly in the C-suite and certainly where um, decisions are made uh, at the table, uh, who from a learning and development performance perspective is in that mix or does it fall just to the one uh, chief HR officer or chief, you know, VP of, of HR? Does that individual is she bringing in the learning and development piece? So structurally, I, I would look for that. I would also look for um, how individuals within the organization at all levels, um, what their perception is of learning and development. Are they familiar with how that's integrated into what the organization says is, is our strategy, is our, is our, is our mission, and how, how even the language use around learning and development. Is integrated. And, and again, I, I fall back to um, the, uh, the current situation, you know, whether you read the McKinsey reports or whether you look at HBR or some of the um, just conversations that we're having across different platforms, how are we learning about anti-racism? How are we developing individuals? You know, I would say before before the last year's events, we would talk about DE and I separately from, say, leadership development, like it's like it's a competency area, and and now that is fundamental. It's not separate from that, and learning and development is so so much a part of that that perhaps the traditional or prior way of viewing that was as a separate entity. So I would look at um, again structurally how learning and development. And talent development is positioned, who is who is around the table and making these decisions and how leaders are behaving.
1: I think that's I would agree with everything there. And I would add two other dimensions that I think I would look for when I go into an organization. First of all, I think that the line manager has a very Big remish, and I use the line manager in a general sense for developing its people. So I look at the way in which that particular dimension of the HRD architecture is, in fact, uh, stitched in of the organization. Are there clear delineation of responsibilities of line managers? Are they actually evaluated in the performance reviews on how they undertake the development task? So that's an important piece. And the other piece then. I, I increasingly look at is what's the role of the employee? How how clued in are the employees about their own development, about their careers, about the types of skills that they need to develop, their employability, all of that. There are other things that are very important. And Holly alluded to a number of formal things, which I think are really important. And I think if you look at some of the on the face of it, on the surface level, you'll be looking at all of the HR policies, the HRG policies and practices, the types of things that are in place, and you will then be looking perhaps at looking under the bonnet a little to see, well, how are they implemented? Because one of the big dilemmas we have in this area is that organisations can espouse a lot of things and they say they have all of this stuff, but it's actually how they implement it is the real test of what happens. And I totally agree with Holly that you have to ask the employees about their perceptions of the quality of implementation, their exposure to H R G, and their evaluation of its uh, quality and effectiveness.
0: I'm conscious as we've talked through all of that that we we're describing strategic HRD in a somewhat generic way as if it's the same in all organizations and all sectors and all countries. So I'm I'm thinking it might be worth breaking that down a little and and exploring whether strategic HRD actually looks the same or different in different sectors and different countries. Well I think that's a a very interesting question and
1: one that's well-researched in the training and development field, the learning and development field. As the organization grows in size and as it becomes more complex, uh, you tend to have a greater degree of formalization of HRD. And if you have more clearly defined roles, you have clearly defined policies, their budget allocations and all of those things. So that's an important differentiation. Number two, in in as organizations grow they move from doing things in a very ad hoc infle- uh, flexible i should say and unstructured way perhaps to a more structured um, modus operandi and they implement uh, training development learning hrd activities in a much more structured and targeted way and then of course the other big thing that we often assume, and I agree with the tenor of the question, that when we talk about HR, strategic HRD, we often talk about a big country, company mentality, and we assume that there's a role, there are specific roles designated to learning and development, training and development. And you won't find those in many small firms. And for example, in SMEs, you will find that the owner manager is a big influence on what happens within that organization. And also you will find that a lot of HRD is informal, conversational, takes place on the job, in work roles, through experience, etc. And they may not even label it HRD, they may just label it learning. So that's a very important thing. Then if you go to public sector organizations, you find that they are less strategic and more person focused. And they're focused perhaps more on the individual needs and on learning and development. And they also have quite a strong job focus. And they look at development for roles, competencies for roles, et cetera. So strategic HRD is definitely um, a, a varied notion and it's uh, highly variegated too, depending on which context you're going to talk about. And there isn't a one size fits all at all it's very much context dependent
2: I would certainly agree with that and and I also think that you can find these exceptions to nonprofits or maybe smaller smaller shops um, depending on who is in the role of, of you know managing leading talent development so sometimes you may find that individuals that come in from a learning and development background we've certainly seen um, students, who maybe come in with a bit more of a generalist perspective in HRM, but certainly a deeper perspective within HRD really transform a small, you know, not, you know, maybe even a public organization, a large organization. So um, I I think that's important.
0: Throughout the episode, you've both given a compelling argument for HRD professionals to become more strategic and And I'm thinking about what that means in terms of developing HRD professionals. So what competencies an HRD professional needs to develop in order to improve themselves in strategic HRD. And I'm also thinking about whether HRD education programs are actually changing to offer HRD professionals the education they need to become more strategic. Yeah. In
2: terms of the educational preparation of our of our professionals and their and researchers and those that call themselves both I think one of the competencies is is early on in, in you know in the program or in their their development is is understanding systems thinking and that HRD or HRM or any any change doesn't happen in isolation and so in When students can begin to see the ripple effect of any change, they take a much more inclusive perspective. And from understanding the the importance of engagement, understanding how how learning and development really should be interwoven throughout uh, multiple aspects of the organization and the importance of knowing the business. So that's another area, know the business. You are not just learning and development, talent development or performance, whatever you call yourselves, um, you need to know the business to which you're serving. And so spending time understanding that and through whether it's embedded internships or specific group projects where you you have a, an actual client, not hypothetical, you have actual clients um, to, to build that, that requisite knowledge of, of not only how learning and development is positioned, but also who it serves. I think another competency is um, consulting. Uh, We have recently at the University of Houston uh, made consulting really a centerpiece within our programs, not only in our executive master's program, but also in our uh, professional program at the master's level and at our undergraduate program. Consulting, being a consultant, understanding um, the issue, applying an evaluation perspective, asking good questions. Um, Of course, it's, you know, often we we wanna hear the answers, but it's, it's really asking good questions that can really help to, to change. So the relational management piece goes, I think also uh, with that as well. And then um, cultural competence is so very important um, to, to understand, especially um, interacting, not only with individual differences and group differences and identities, but certainly from a more global perspective, um, I mentioned earlier that that is, that is foundational to leadership development. And while I'll, I'll separate that out, uh, I, I think it's interwoven at all levels that that cultural competence is so very important and that it's evolving um, as we, we understand how that shows up differently. And we've already touched on evaluation and assessment. I think that is a core competency. I know it's a core competency. I think when students go into the workplace and have that lens, it, it, we have seen that they really stand out. Um, with the questions that they ask, with with um, the people that they choose to partner with, the engaging conversations that they're not they're not quick to act without the data that they need.
1: I I make a distinction uh, in a paper that I published last year on mindset and skill set. Uh, Harley has really elucidated and illuminated. A lot of the skill set pieces around professional, uh, cultural skills, relational skills, business skills and all of that. But the mindset is also important. What I found from the research that I have done is that many learning and development HRD professions do not think strategically. They think in a very operational, tactical way. And that perhaps limits their impact within the organization. And may prevent them from getting that seat at the table that Holly alluded to earlier in her, in her answer. And I think that's very important. I also think that the skill set and the competence set required depends on this, the career stage of the individual. Because, for example, um, in the research I conducted, I found that specialist knowledge such as LD knowledge training design knowledge knowledge about learning and all of those concepts were very important at the beginning of a hrd professional's career but as they moved up to the hierarchy they had to uh, drop some of those things and acquire a lot of the relational and cultural stuff and consulting stuff and political skills and generic interpersonal skills they became really more important And then as they moved up into the upper echelons, they had to acquire a bigger business knowledge, project management skills, and organizational change and transformational knowledge and stuff like that. So they moved in a little bit into the realms of OD.
0: So as a a final question, I'm thinking back to the two conversations I had with you one-to-one and now in this group conversation. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, throughout all of this, you've both done a great job of highlighting what's known about strategic HRD. And so I'm starting to think at the end of the conversation around what that means in terms of what next. So what are the biggest gaps in our understanding of strategic HRD? And and how can we be closing those gaps through research or through HRD professionals partnering with researchers?
1: One of the big gaps I think in the strategic HRD research is showing that long-term investment in HRD impacts business performance. That is a big area and a big challenge. Most of the studies that are undertaken are cross sectional They don't, and they use single source data and they do not track changes in both training and changes in business performance and see how they relate to each other. And in addition, I haven't investigated what I called reverse causality. How does a very good or a very poor organisation performance impact subsequent investment in, in HRD? So that's a big area. And it's the really, it's almost the holy grail of this field, trying to demonstrate a causal relationship between HRD and business performance, because that's one of the strong pieces that underpins the whole strategic HRD paradigm. I think the other area, that I think is important is the relationship between strategic HRD practices and HRM practices. Strategic HRM practices: how they fit together, how they synergize with each other, and what cumulative performance effects are got or achieved from a configuration of both HRM and HRD practices. Those represent two uh, very challenging areas, and I think the third area then. And it's alluded to in something that Holly said earlier, which I think is very perceptive, the cultural dimension. We don't know enough about HR, strategic HRD cross-culturally. It does, is the relationship between HRD and uh, business performance the same across culturally? Are there moderating influences of cultural differences, institutional differences, uh, economic development, human capital development differences within those? countries. That's a really big area, and it's a very exciting area that I would encourage um, students of HRD conducting PhDs to start engaging with.
0: Well, that feels like a wonderful place to wrap up the episode. It, it, it sounds very much like a call to action, um, and at the same time, I think it points to the potential and the opportunities that there are out there if strategic HRD can continue to evolve and we can close that gap between research and practice and get practitioners and researchers working together to answer those questions. So thank you both so much indeed for your time today. I've really enjoyed our conversations.
2: Thank you so much, Thomas. Always great to be in the same space with you. Bye. Bye. Bye now.
0: Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It was wonderful spending time with Thomas and with Holly. If you enjoyed the episode, check out our others to explore topics such as training and development, learning organizations, critical HRD, and much more. New episodes release weekly. To learn more about the series, check out hrdmasterclass.com and to learn about the Academy of Human Resource Development, check out ahrd.org. By becoming a member, you can access extra bonus materials not included in the podcast. Also, don't forget to look into our group discussion sponsor, Interpretive Simulations, by visiting their website at interpretive.com. I'm looking forward to being with you in our next episode, our final episode for the first series. Until then, this is Darren Short signing off from the HRD Masterclass. HRD Masterclass podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Human Resource Development and is a production of allbypodcast.com.